Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Church, I'm Scott Coghill, one of the uh, elders here at River Bluff. Thank you for coming today, and thank you, worship group, for another great uh, worship service. Uh, when Pastor Joe asked me, to, uh, to give the elder prayer today, I always ask him ahead of time, what are you speaking about today? And when he said he was in Nehemiah again, and he was talking about the gifts of God and the, the blessings of God, and um, and then I asked what else, and he talked about like the World Trade Center. I know yesterday was 9-11, and uh, for most of you, you were around during that time, but I wanted to throw out some quick numbers to you before I pray for us today. The deaths on 9-11-2001, 2,977 souls. At the World Trade Center, including the first responders, 2,607. There were 71 police deaths, 343 fire department. Most of them died when the towers both came down. 125 civilians and military at our Pentagon. The four planes, not counting the terrorists because I'm not gonna count them was 246, more than 90 countries lost people. The average age was 40, the youngest was 18 and a med tech, the oldest was 79, a maintenance man. This is and today still is the deadliest terror attack on world history. And I don't know if anybody saw the the special, but they interviewed uh, most of the 100 babies that were born of women, of the men that died in those terror attacks and, uh, and ask them, and they, you know, what would they want Americans to say? And I wanted to leave you with that today. From the 100 or so babies that are now 20 years old to America, quote, they just hope the nation can honor all of those that were lost on 9-11 with more simple kindness, more community, and finding common ground among us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for all those people that lost their lives on 9-11 and for those that lost their lives defending our freedom from past to present and in the future. Lord, I also pray for our Afghan brothers and sisters that are still trying to get out of there and the few Americans that are left. 116,000 people you successfully have allowed us to get out of there with not just us, but our coalition forces. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. And we're really thankful for those 13 men that gave their lives to get that 116,000 out. On a local level, Lord, we pray for this thing called COVID, this pandemic, that people will make the right choice and do the right thing each and every day with protecting themselves and the others around them. I also ask, Lord, that you watch over Fort uh, Johnson Baptist Church after their tragic fire in their meeting center there. And we also pray for Hillcrest Baptist Pastor, Lord, who's continuing to uh, convalesce from COVID and especially for our brother Dave Harden, who's there passing along your word today. Please empower him, Lord, with your words. And finally, Lord, please bless River Bluff and our pastor, Joe Still, as he brings today's message. Thank you. Amen. Well, good morning. How are we? Thank you, Scott, for leading us in prayer. And Gabby and team, thank you for leading us to worship our Lord in such a powerful way. Man, it's good to be here uh, with the Lord, with each of you, and uh, just so grateful. Um, one of the things, did, did anybody notice the new beautiful artwork that exists in this space? Have you seen it? Okay, just turn around and look at the back walls. By, beside the doors, there's some new beautiful artwork that has, has been installed. This is, um, uh, I want, want to give a recognition to the, the marvelous firm uh, design-build team of Gary Weiss and Kim Blayton. They, 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 <laughs> yay! They, they designed and built uh, our, our new giving kiosks, and they did... More than I could have asked or imagined, thought of. Uh, they did such a wonderful job of providing um, some very secure uh, capacity and at the same time uh, making it beautiful and attractive. And uh, so, and, and let, while I'm speaking of that, let, let me also thank you uh, who, who give so generously, so sacrificially. 
uh, to the work of the kingdom of God through the ministries of River Bluff Church. Uh, I know so many of you sacrifice in incredible ways, and I just want to tell you thank you uh, for that. We are going to continue to, to seek to be faithful um, stewards of that. And, uh, and one of the ways we get to do that, you know, uh, I know some of you uh, were here last week. Maybe if you weren't, I uh, know that uh, Pastor Guy Smith uh, was at Hillcrest Baptist last week speaking, kind of in a last-minute uh, request from that church, and Pastor Dave is back there today. Uh, pastor John Moore, who's the pastor there, has COVID and thought he was going to be up and, and running again for this week and then just wasn't able. So just continue to pray for him and his wife, uh, Gail, uh, as they continue to, to, to come to healing and for Hillcrest uh, Baptist Church um, as uh, their pastor's kind of a little bit out of commission. Now, uh, as we've already uh, kind of addressed and stepped into, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of uh, that, that tragic event, that horrible terrorist attack uh, on our nation. But one of the realities uh, of that took place afterwards in what I'll call the aftermath of those attacks. And, and it's this. There were thousands, literally thousands, of real-life decisions that leaders had to make, sometimes in, in just moments. And it wasn't just, you know, uh, you know, at ground zero. It was all over the world. People were having to make decisions. But at, at ground zero, there were some immediate, real-life decisions that had to, to be dealt with. One of those had to deal with the issue of the incredible loss of life that had taken place. Um, a, another real-life issue was that there were still people trapped alive in the rubble that needed rescuing. Well, one of the decisions that had to be made also about that was because historically terrorists have set off bombs before in places, and then when the rescues team came in, attacked again. And so there was concerns about follow-up attacks. Uh, there, there were all kinds of things, structural safety issues of sending rescuers in to such a catastrophe um, there were just thousands of, of real-life issues that could need it to take place before rebuilding could ever happen. And we're in this series about re rebuilding, and I, I want you to understand that sometimes even before you get to the rebuild project, there are a lot of decisions that you need to make to position yourself well to, to rebuild. Now, while I pray that none of us uh, that this nation never again faces, this world would never again face a calamity such as 9-11. Um, the truth is, we're all going to deal with real-life issues. We're going to deal with real-life tragedies, real-life difficulties, real-life struggles. And somebody says, well, that's good news, Joe. Thanks for that. Well, that's the words of our Lord. Jesus in John 16, told us, in this life, in this world you will have tribulation. You're going to have challenges. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to have things in real life that you've got to deal with. Now, the beauty of that is knowing God has an ideal that he wants to provide and bring to his people. God has this ideal, but we've got the real deal here. And so how do we move from that? How do we, when we find ourselves facing challenges in real life, how do we move towards God's ideal? And we've been looking at this journey of the life of this man named Nehemiah. And so we're going to be in uh, the second chapter again of Nehemiah. We're going to pick up uh, where Pastor Guy left off last week. Nehemiah, as you recall, had this great conviction that he had been given an assignment from God. And, and Pastor Guy addressed last week what it means to, what it looked like for Nehemiah to wait upon the Lord. If you, didn't, if you didn't hear that message, I'd encourage you to go to our YouTube channel. It'll help you even unpack this message a, a little more fully. But now for those of you who are um, kind of our outline people that maybe follow along on our, our, our app, that, uh, on the Bible app that you follow our, our teaching outlines along, or maybe you print them out before you come and do that, I need to give you a warning. Um, things have changed since I sent that in. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take me at least a whole other week to unpack that whole message. Um, we're only going to get to points one and two today. 
Uh, I think it was eight points in the message. We're only going to get to the first two today. Um, I, I didn't, when the Lord kind of gave me that outline of, of those 11 verses, uh, I really thought I was going to march just right through them. And yesterday, God kind of changed all that. So here's something else that uh, may be bad news for you. Um, you're not going to have some of the scriptures coming up on the screen that the Lord gave me yesterday. Uh, I will try to emphasize them. You could write them down and go look them up. I will post them on Realm today. Later today, I'll post them so you can have access to them electronically um, if you would. But we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 9, and we're going to march our way through verse 11 today. So we're not going to march far, um, but we, we are going to take this. And again, we said, we've been saying over the last couple of weeks that Nehemiah saw his mission from God to go into the city of Jerusalem, rebuild both some physical structures, but also build into the spiritual lives of God's people. And I want you to see how Nehemiah sets out to do this. Now, remember, when we left last week where, where Guy left us, um, Nehemiah had received uh, an opportunity from God uh, to speak to the king about requests, needs he had, in order to go do this assignment. And Nehemiah stepped into that boldly when God gave him opportunity because Nehemiah had prayed up and he had waited upon the Lord. And then we find ourselves, he's, he's got all these gifts, these resources, these supplies from the king, and we're at the next step, if you would, in the journey. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says this, Nehemiah says, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now, this was something that he had asked for, and the king gave him letters of these governors of the provinces, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that he had to pass through. He wanted safety for passing through. The king gave him that. But then the king gave him something else that Nehemiah had not asked for. Look at this. Now, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. He sent generals and colonels and captains and lieutenants and the cavalry accompanied our dear brother Nehemiah. He hadn't asked for that. But God, through this pagan king, provided it. But I want you to notice the two kind of big issues, real deal life issues that Nehemiah was facing. The first involves safe passage. It involves passage across about 800 miles of desert wilderness. That's the estimate of how, how far it was from Susa uh, in the Persian capital to uh, where Nehemiah was headed to the city of Jerusalem. And it was some very hostile territory. The second real issue that comes up uh, as we continue reading in verse 10, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased him greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So we have this hostile territory that they have to travel through. That's one kind of real issue that Nehemiah was facing. The other is he had some identifiable uh, opposition. The, the people got called out. They're, they're named here who the opposition was. And they will show up later on in this same passage, uh, and we'll deal with that a little more next week. I want to focus on this first issue that, that Nehemiah faced. It was the issue of safety, of, of safe travel. And here's the first principle that I pull out when I was looking uh, and outlining this, this chapter, or this part of chapter 2, and it's this. I want you to notice that Nehemiah boldly employs every God-given resource. He boldly puts into his life, into this mission, the resources that God gave him. Now remember, Nehemiah has this great challenge. He's, he's, he's heading to Jerusalem, but he's got these hostile conditions. So what did he do? Well, here's what I hear some people talking about doing, you know, around me sometimes these days. You know, some, some people would just say, well, I'm just going to walk by faith right across the desert. Just, I'm just going to take off, walk across the desert, you know, just keep walking. You know, God will provide me a lizard to eat and a cactus to drink from. I'm just going, just going for it. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah steps into the resources that he sees provided by God through the hand of a pagan king. He steps, he steps into those. Um, you know, th th there are people who, you know, I, I hear all the time saying, God's got this. And I believe that. 
no matter what this is in our lives, God's got this. But let me show you how God's word tells us he primarily has this by giving us good gifts. James 1 tells us that God sends good and perfect gifts to his people. It's one of the promises in scripture that God himself sends good and perfect gifts. And I believe one of the great gifts that God sends his people is godly wisdom. And this book is filled with the wisdom of God. We have access to it. You have access to it. It's one of the great gifts. The book of Proverbs, which is also known as wisdom literature, the book of wisdom in the Bible, tells us this in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. Getting wisdom is the most important thing you can do. Whatever else you get, get insight. God's word charges us absolutely, you know, here to get this. Now, this is how God's got this. God gives wisdom to human beings so that when we come and face challenges, whatever your this is, God gives us wisdom to walk through those challenges. To whatever real is that you're facing, God gives wisdom to deal with that. Now listen to how the half-brother of of Jesus, James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, talks about wisdom. James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It is also peace-loving. It is gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. Some translations say obedient. Some translations say submissive. Then it goes on to say it is full of mercy, this wisdom from above, and it's full of mercy and good deeds. See, God, one of the great gifts he gives to human beings is he gives us wisdom. It's the primary way that when we say God's got this, we can know that because he gives us wisdom to walk through whatever we're facing. And so what that means is we shouldn't be like that guy that you've heard this story before about who, you know, built this nice two-story house next to a river. And the river started to flood. And the guy's on his front porch watching the river kind of creep up to his foundation. And the government sends in rescue. They, they send out Humvees to come and rescue people because they can make it, you know, through the, the, the flood that's rising. And they come to this guy's house and say, sir, get in the Humvee. You know, it's, it's going to get worse. You're going to die. And the guy says, no, I, God's going to save me. He's going to rescue me. I got, I got faith in God. And so the Humvees drive off. The river rises. He has to get in the second-story window, and he, he looks out, and some rescue boats have been sent to, to, to rescue people who didn't go the first time. And they come up, and they say, you're going to die. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse before it gets better. You need to get in the boat. He says, no, you know, my faith is strong. My God's stronger than this river. And uh, so the boat goes on. And the next thing we know, he's on his roof. And they send a helicopter in. And the helicopter drops a basket down for the guy to crawl in. And he says, no, my God's got this. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust him. And so the helicopter flies off. And the next scene's in heaven. And he's standing before God. And he says, God, I don't, I don't understand. I, I had such faith that you were going to save me. And God said, dude, I gave you a book filled with wisdom. I sent you a Humvee, a boat, and a helicopter. And you wouldn't get on any of them. Don't be like that guy. God gives wisdom to his people to see us through the difficulties that we face in life. If you're going to move to God's ideal, the way that you deal with what's real is through the gifts of God. That's why the scripture says getting wisdom, a most important thing. And wisdom uses the resources that God provides. Listen to what Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We like that verse. We like to quote that verse. We, we, we love that verse. We don't pay a lot of attention to the last half of that verse, which goes on to say this. Stubborn fools despise wisdom and instruction. Some translations say wisdom and discipline. The people who despise that kind of wisdom, the Bible says, you know, are foolish. These are people who say, Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I know. I, the, the Bible speaks into this. Friends, wisdom is using resources that God gives us. Now, in, in Nehemiah's day, it was a pagan king, this pagan ruler. And God used this pagan ruler to give Nehemiah the resources so that he could accomplish God's mission for him. 
And, and he was wise enough to step into that. You know, the New Testament speaks into this for God's people about uh, governing authorities. In, in Romans chapter 13, God's word. Now remember, this is the Apostle Paul writing to Christians who were being persecuted by probably one of the worst ruling governments of the day, Nero. And he's writing to this crazy maniac emperor who's feeding Christians the lions. That's the context. And Paul writes these words to Christians at Rome. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God. And those in a position of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And they will be punished. Verse 4. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. The resources that come down from heaven often flow to us through very practical means. Practical paths of deliverance. And we've got to see wisdom in stepping into those and utilizing those. Now, I, I don't know what your deal is today. I don't know what, what you're having to face and walk through on your journey to God's ideal. I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't know whether you're battling, you know, a compulsive behavior, maybe an addiction. But God's word, the wisdom in it says you can't do that alone. You're going to have some people that you can tell the truth about your life to. It's called confession. You've got to confess to other people what your struggle is. You've got to get it out there. And that verse goes on to say, so that healing might come. That's God's plan. That's godly wisdom for somebody who's in that kind of real deal battle. Look for a Christ-centered, you know, recovery group. Cindy, Dean, our, our counseling center will help you find one in our area because it's so important. Maybe you're facing financial struggle or, or, or difficult. And God's word is filled with godly wisdom, counsel on that. God's word says, don't, don't rob from the government. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. You know, God says, don't rob from me. Bring your tithe and offering to the Lord. God says, don't rob from somebody else. Don't, don't, don't cheat others. There's so many financial wisdom in God's word. And out of that, God says, I, I will bless you. Sometimes it involves, you know, allowing yourself to be accountable to other people for your finances. But see, God has a plan for whatever you're facing. And here's, here's the truth. I don't remember who I heard say that, but I, this, I, but I love it. If you got a pulse, God's got a plan. He's got an ideal for you to move you to. No matter what your deal is right now, no matter what you're facing, God's got a plan to move you through that. And that plan involves the wisdom of God. He, he has a plan for you. He will provide you with resources. They may be all around you, but you've got to take them. You've got to bring them in. But let me say this. He himself will be your greatest resource. God himself wants to be your greatest resource, so rely on him. And use every gift that he gives you. If you want to get you know, to the ideal, you're going to have to pass through what's real. And one of the ways that Nehemiah shows us to do that is by employing, boldly employing every God-given resource. Second thing that I see Nehemiah doing is in verse 11 of chapter 2. And it's this. Nehemiah says, so I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Now, the next verse, if you want to press on into verse 12, tells you what he does next when he actually begins the, the, the mission, if you would. This is actually part of the mission. It's the most important part of the mission. He says, I went to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. Now, remember, Nehemiah has made this 800-mile journey, and he gets there. And for three days, there doesn't seem to be any activity. Nehemiah just says, I was there. I was there in Jerusalem. That, that's, that, that's what I did. Now, remember this. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, was four months. Okay? It was a four-month period. The Bible tells us that what Nehemiah did in that time period was he prayed and fasted. Once God brought the news of how uh, destroyed Jerusalem was, uh, his heart was broken, and for four months he prayed and fasted. And then God gave him this opportunity to speak to the king 
about what was on his heart. And he does. And he boldly goes before the king and asks for help. And the king grants help. And so Nehemiah begins gathering his supplies to take this 800-mile journey. Now, some of us, you know, we think 800 miles times 75 miles an hour. We calculate how, how quickly we'll get there. They didn't know that 75 miles an hour existed back then. Okay? They, they didn't have a concept of traveling 75 miles an hour. It was more like one and a half miles an hour. Or maybe two, two and a half miles an hour on a good day. Okay? So we're talking about a long trip. Uh, historians who kind of study the movement of caravans in Nehemiah's day would tell us that it would take somewhere between three and five months to make an 800-mile journey through this territory. So let's, let's just kind of land in the middle. Four months, he put together his resources, he got his supplies, he, he, you know, he met with these army officers and the cavalry, and they start heading out. And it takes them four months to get to Jerusalem. So now it's been eight months from the time his heart was pricked by God, he had this burning passion to go do something for the kingdom of God. And he gets to Jerusalem, and what does he do? For three days, he doesn't seem to do anything. I'm going to tell you what I think he did, okay? And I'll, I'll tell you why. And I, I, I believe I can support it scripturally, too. And I think Nehemiah did it because one of his mentors who had gone before him did it. Ezra. If you go back to Ezra... Uh, in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 8, um, verse, verse 32, it, it tells us that when they arrived at Jerusalem, they rested there three days. Ezra basically took the same trip. He really kind of had the same mission, except they were going to start rebuilding the temple. But he was supposed to also rebuild the walls and the other structures there. They left about 15 years before Nehemiah did, but the Bible clearly tells us that when they got to Jerusalem, they did what for three days? They rested. You know, one of the things I love about this Bible, three days are really special in this book. Really, really special. Maybe one day you just want to do a search of everything that took place over three days because some glorious things happened in three days, okay? Ezra rested three days. I think Nehemiah learned from Ezra. And he shows up, and I think he rested for three days. There's another reason that I think Nehemiah rested for three days, and it's because this was a man that sought the Lord. And one of the things that was true about God's people is they understood and they relied upon the Old Testament, especially the first five books of what are our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they spent a lot of time understanding and, and, and studying the creation accounts. And so Nehemiah would have seen in the creation accounts God's plan for rest. And that's why I believe we see Nehemiah doing this second thing. And it's this. He began his work from a position of rest. If you're going to deal with reality in this life... You have got to deal with it from a position of rest. Now, if you want to turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we're going to kind of hang out there for a couple of minutes. But now remember, he's in, he's in Jerusalem. He's there for three days. Now, be honest. How many of you, if you had, been, had this eight-month buildup to this great project that you just could not wait to get into, how many, once the, the, the moment had arrived, you were, you were there, it was, it was a go. How many of you would have said, I'm going to rest for three days? I'm just telling you, I'd have had my tool, my wife will tell you, I'd have had my tool belt out, I'd have had my, my DeWalt saw set up, I'd have had my, my nail guns out, you know, I would have been going, at, even if we showed up at midnight, right, honey? <laughs> you know, I'll start a project at midnight. Nehemiah understood something deep and rich about God. If we are going to accomplish anything of lasting kingdom value, it will only be accomplished if we will begin from a position of rest. And I want, you to sh I want to show you that back in the creation account. Because God laid this out then. And you, you and I need to have a theology 
of rest if we are ever going to walk through the difficulties in, in this life. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, there's this creative order that God gives, and it tells us, you know, on day one, God did this, and day two, God did this, and day three, God did this, day four. What, what did God create on day six? Remember? Look at your neighbor. God created human beings on day six. He created the first man, the first woman. He created human beings. He created, he created us. And he gets to the end of day six and he says, it was very good. It was very good. And then the Bible tells us that the next thing that God did was what? Day seven. Listen to this. I'm going to back up into Genesis chapter one, verse 31, and then jump into, into chapter two, verse one. And God saw that everything he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. Notice that order. We'll come back to that. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God had finished his work, all that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day. And he made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So if God created human beings on day six, got done at the end of day six, said, very good. And day seven, God rested. What was the very first thing that people did with God? Rested. The very first engagement that human beings had with God was to rest with him, to rest in him. This is an important rhythm in the creation narrative that we begin before they would ever start their, their dominion calling of, of being fruitful and multiplying. Before they'd ever start that, the first thing that they had to do was rest in God. Before they would go forth and multiply, they rested in God. And here's, here's a kingdom principle. We do not work, you know, f- so that we can go rest. We, we have this mindset. We work so we can go play. We work so we can rest. You know, we can't wait for the weekend. Everything's about working to get to the weekend. That is, that is the opposite of God's economy. In God's kingdom economy, what we do first is we rest in him and then we work. To be fruitful. Now, I want to illustrate this using an image that I was kind of mentored in. A guy by the name of Mike Breen kind of developed this. And he uses this image of a semicircle with a pendulum to show us a rhythm of God's creation, in God's creation, for what it looks like for us to rest. And again, it's pointed out here in Genesis. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 22, we read this. God blessed him, speaking of, of, of Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the waters in the sea and m- multiply the earth. This was a great blessing of God. There was, it was this blessing, this, this gift of God that you and I could be fruitful. You're able to bring that slide up there. There you go. She's got it. Thank you, Megan. Um, that we would be fruitful. One of the gifts that God gave to human beings is that we could enter into the continuation of the created order. That we could partner with God in building beauty and, and, and uh, multiplying and, and having dominion. God, God gifted human beings with this fruitful kind of life. But even before that, he had given us the gift of rest that we read about in Genesis chapter 2. So this, this rest here is on kind of the other end of our model. There's this resting that we do so that we can be fruitful. We actually begin in this attitude, this condition of rest. Now, friends, this is God's design for what a flourishing life would look like. This is God's design. There are some other words in Scripture that will come up uh, about this. If you read over in Exodus 20, when you get to the Ten Commandments, uh, verse 8 of Exodus 20 says, remember, this is the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There's this idea of rest, this Sabbath. So when you see that in Scripture, you need to think about this this rest at at, at creation. It goes on to say in verse 9, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So now here's this idea of being fruitful again, this this word work. Now this, this first Sabbath that God 
God gave is an extremely important principle for a life that will flourish in, in whatever reality we face. And then there's this other principle. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. The seventh day is the Sabbath. It's holy un, unto the Lord. Now this morning, I want us to think about both gifts. Focus on, on this gift of rest, however, is where I want us to spend just a, a little bit of time here because it, there are incredible implications for having strength to deal with whatever is real in your life right now that you're facing, any real struggle that you're facing. Again, the, the fourth commandment tells us to remember this. That remember this rest that God provides. Keep it, keep it holy. And this is much more than just taking a Sunday nap. It, it, it's, it's so much more than that. It's about resting in God. It's about putting your trust in Him, relying on Him. The psalmist in Psalms 127.2 writes these words. He says, it's useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat. For God gives rest to his loved ones. Now, one of the ways that you can know that you are kind of falling out of God's perfect rhythm for your life is anxiety begins to be produced all around you and, and, and in you. You're not resting in God. And so I want us to, to draw your attention to uh, something else in the creative narrative because I think this is important. Over and over again, we see this, this phrase used. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, it says that God called the, 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 the light day and he called the darkness night. And then God says this, or God's word says this, and there was evening and there was morning on the first day. And then you get to verse 8, and it says, And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And verse 13, And there was evening, and there was morning on the third day. Verse 19, There was evening, there was morning. Verse 23, There was evening, there was morning. And then verse 31, God creates everything, so it was good. And there was evening, there was morning. There is a rhythm there. Do you see that? What came first in God's mind? There was evening, and there was morning. And that was a day. Now, when do you think the day begins? Most of us. When our alarm clocks go off. We love starting the day alarmed. God did not intend for us to start our days alarmed. He intended for us to start our days resting in Him. Being with Him. There was evening and there was morning. Is what the scripture tells us. That's a rhythm in the created uh, uh, account. It, it's, it remains the same. When you get over to, into Genesis chapter 3. And we see God in relationship with Adam and Eve. The Bible tells us that God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. When's the cool of the day? It's the evening. It's the cool of the day when coolness begins to settle in. And there seems to be this natural rhythm. It seemed to be that there was this time in the day, the evening, which was the beginning in God's mind, that God would be with his people. And then he would launch them out to be fruitful, you know, in the morning. That was kind of the rhythm, to walk in God's presence that way. God's intent was that his people would rest in him to be equipped, to be prepared, to be strengthened, to deal with what's real in their lives. And when we get out of that kind of rhythm, we go from being human beings to human doings. God never intended us to be human doings. He intended for us to be human beings, being with him, resting in, in him. That's how God values us. And if we don't, then what we do is we turn our lives into nothing but doing. Instead of living in the joy of being with God. Jesus came to restore so much of creation. And one of the things that Jesus came to restore was this rhythm. Because life, apart from this rhythm, is just so, you know, so unmanageable. Part of this rhythm that God created in the, the Genesis account was, you know, God said that he was going to create 
man in his image, that we would bear his image, that we would be in relationship with him. Now, in, in, in the Old Testament day when that was written, there wasn't photography. You know, we, we think a lot of times in our day we would think of an image, we'd go look in the mirror, see our reflection, that'd be our image. Um, or we'd think, you know, a picture we can pull out on our phone and look at, that's an image. Well, in this day, image was more related to imprinting and impression. And what it means to be created in God's image is that you, the, the image of God, the, a part of God has been impressed into the soul of human beings. That imprinting. Well, when sin came into the world, what happened, Adam and Eve tried to tear away from that imprinting by God. And they lost so much of the value of bearing his image. Jesus came to restore that imprinting. Jesus came to make oneness with God possible again so that we could fully bear the, the image of God. But uh, such a part of that in creation was that we would rest in him. Friends, if you want to fully bear the image of God that you were created to bear, you've got to rest in God in a regular way. Nehemiah understood that. Jesus came to restore that. And that's why when we get to the, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is trying to restore that back into, in, into the lives of his disciples. And in John chapter 15, we find Jesus coming to teach his disciples this huge principle, really back from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what it means to be with God. And in John 15, verses 1 through 8, we read these words. If you want to flip there, you can in your Bibles. John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you were clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide or rest in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus said in verse 5, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and, bur and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus is teaching back out of the Genesis account of what it means to rest into being fruitful, to abide for fruitful living in the kingdom. There is this rhythm that God intended. He's the vine dresser. He's the one that's really doing the work. The only way that we will enter into fruitfulness in this life is if we let him work in us while we rest in him. That's what Jesus was teaching here in John 15. Our primary responsibility is on this abiding in Christ's side. That's where our work primarily needs to be. We think our work is on the other side of, of this, but it's not. God's at work in us if we will trust in this rhythm of life, of abiding in him, of resting in him, spending time in his word, spending time in prayer, prioritizing our relationship with, with the Lord. There's some other components to that that we see in John chapter 15. If you'll bring the next slide up, it talks about works that will take place. Sabbath, we talked about that word. But then there's this rhythm where God says, I'm going to grow you up. See, it's God's intent that we would bear much fruit. And so God, when we abide in Christ, what God does is God begins to grow us spiritually, give us strength spiritually to face the difficulties in this life. And so we move back into fruitfulness. Now, when we're on this fruitful side, what does God do next? Jesus said he prunes us. And so God starts cutting some things away. And one of the ways that God does that is he sends challenges. He sends real-life struggles into your life. What happens when we, we face a struggle? We rhythm back into resting God. We run back to, to Jesus. We come back to be with him. There he strengthens us. He gives us capacity. He shows us his wisdom so that we could once again swing over into fruitfulness. 
This is the rhythm of life that God has intended for us. But it is only possible as we, as we rest in him. This is the rhythm Jesus came to restore into the life of his followers. And I see it as the position that Nehemiah realized he had to begin his mission from. He had to begin his mission from a position of rest. He had to rest in God. So instead of doing like Joe Steele would do and, 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 and you know, get his tube belt on, he stopped and he paused. And he spent three days, I believe, in the presence of God, in the presence of God worshiping. It may have just happened to work out. I don't know it. doesn't say it. That he landed there just before the Sabbath. And he may have got to worship God, you know, in the temple for the very first time, that temple that had begun to be rebuilt. But he took time to rest in God, to trust in God. Now, I don't know what you need strength for. I don't know if the reality that you're facing right now that's a struggle for you is, is a health issue. I don't know if the challenge that you're facing right now is a financial issue. I don't know whether maybe it's a marital issue or a parenting issue or a vocational issue. I don't know what issue you're facing. I know one issue that all of us seem to be facing in America right now is an anger issue. I mean, just that, that request that those 20-year-olds made for our nation out of their own suffering was that we would find a spirit of unity. We're actually going to deal with um, in a couple of weeks, this, this issue about anger because Nehemiah has to deal with it. And so we're going to be looking at that in a couple of weeks. But Nehemiah comes to realize if he's going to do, accomplish anything of kingdom value, he's going to have to start from a position of rest. It was the only hope he knew that he would have of accomplishing the mission of God. So he would boldly employ the resources that God gave him, even from a pagan king, and he would begin from a position of rest. And we're going to stop there today. And here's what I want you to stop there thinking about. As you think about God has promised in his word to give you pathways of wisdom to the resources that he wants to provide, that you would have hope. That it would give you hope. It would fill you with hope. Okay, God... God's going to do this. I'm going to pursue. I'm going I'm to get this. I'm going to get godly wisdom. And then that you can know, you can have hope that what God is going to do, probably has already done, is God is going to provide those resources around you as you rest in him, as you trust in him. You'll, you'll encounter the spirit of the living God giving you divine wisdom. Sorting it out for you, interpreting the word of God for you when you sit in front of it. His spirit will do that as you rest in him. And that should give you great hope. Because that's God's plan for you. It's not for calamity or disaster. But for a future and a hope. Pray with me. Father, we, we come... We come again this moment to some space set aside to make decisions in your presence for your sake, for your glory, and for our own good. And God, we, we come again reminding each other of what your word says about itself, that it is, your word is living and it's active. And God, we're grateful for that. We're grateful that your word that's living and active moves us towards hope. So Father, we come. We want to live in that hope. We want to live in that hope of confidence, God, that you you give resources to your people to make it through whatever we're dealing with, to get to your ideal plans for us. That you, oh God, want us to draw near to you and 
we can trust in you and rest in you and that you will give us strength and power from above to make it through, God, whatever we're facing into your ideal. That's hope for your people. And so, God, we come to live in that hope. And I don't know, maybe you're here today and you've never, you've never been able to trust and rest in God because you've never trusted that his son's death on Calvary's cross could pay for your sin. And the Bible says if you want to really enter the rest of God, the only way is through the cross of Christ. The cross that means Jesus took on his body on that cross the sins of all humanity and that anyone who would put their trust in him that his death would pay the penalty for their sin. If you just cry out to him and say, Jesus, I believe that. I believe you died so that I might live. If you trust in him, you can rest in, in God. And you can do that right now just simply saying, Jesus, I call on your name. I want to be at rest. I want strength to deal with what's real in my life. I can't do it on my own. I come seeking you, God. And the Bible says if you call on the name of Jesus from a heart that's seeking him, you'll be saved. A heart that will submit fully to him, you'll be saved. A heart that will trust, rest in him, you'll be saved. And you can do that right where you're seated right now. You can just pray this prayer. Jesus, I believe. I'm trusting in you. I repent. I change the way that I've thought about that I could save myself. And I trust that only you and you alone can save me. And that you can give me strength to live in that rhythm of life that God intended from the beginning. You can do that right now, just where you're at. Just call on Christ. Others of us, we just need to renew our commitments. Renew our, our life that we will, we will be devoted to begin with resting in God. That we will live our life being fully devoted to living out of the resources that God gives us so that we can live in that living hope that we have in Him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and make these commitments again. Amen.